0: Producer Doug here. I just want to talk about Pop Culture Classroom. They are the ones that put on Denver Comic Con, and we want to help support them so that we can keep bringing you all this amazing audio, such as panels and interviews, from Denver Comic Con. So let's get right into it. Pop Culture Classroom inspires a love of learning, increases literacy, celebrates diversity, and builds community through the tools of popular culture and the power of self-expression. They envision individuals transformed by the educational power of popular culture who create diverse, inclusive, and engaged communities. They provide quality service to kids and communities, respect, inclusive, and diversity, uh, quality of opportunity, alternative approaches to education, and they recognize each person's intrinsic dignity and importance through open communication, responsibility, and honesty. Did I sound like I read that off the website? I absolutely did, because... Well, I did. I want to get everything right for them because they are fantastic. I recommend going to the website and donating just to keep them going. This fantastic program, plus everything to do for the community, uh, literacy, respect, and of course, Denver Comic Con, so we can bring you all of this stellar guests and panels and Q&As and interviews. So remember, go to popcultureclassroom.org, click on the donate, or just take a spin around their website and check it out. And now, on with the show.
1: That you, you've done so many roles under heavy makeup, but have this amazing ability. We always know it's you. Like your, your unique ability
2: to because that's my name and the credit. your name, that's <laughs> People know because they say, "Oh, that's Ron Promo. But they never think of you feels like, there's like a
1: creature actor. You know what I mean? You're, you're, you're always, you're Ron your you're actor. But when I look back at so many of the roles here, from the first thing I think I saw, which was a quest for fire, it was a quest for fire, um, you know, to Beauty and the Beast, the Hellboy, that you were under all this makeup, and is that, I think it takes a special kind of energy to be able to act like that, is that something you immediately had a, a, a skill with, or did
2: you have to learn it? It was weird, because, I mean, I, it's not, like, the, the only, the only part of my career, where I kind of had an ability to say yes or no and make a choice is the last few years. But the first 25, 30 years of my career, I, I, there was no design on my part. You know, these things, every single thing that happened was purely coincidental and purely some sort of random act of the universe. So, uh, the, the audition for Quest for Fire, which was, I had never done a movie before, was, it was as if you were going to audition for the Geek in Ringling Brothers Barnum and Belly Circus. What the hell chicken? I mean, they had, they had motherfuckers in here, man. <laughs> one guy had one arm coming out of his ass, another one coming out of his neck, and um, there was a guy who was about 7 foot 14. And, was this big? I mean, you know, and I'm like, oh shit, this is the group I fall into. Because, uh, this is my wheelhouse, man. So you didn't really have to, you know, do, be very impressive to get like a lead role in that movie. Um, you just had to kind of be breathing, you know, not term- not be terminal. He has a What happened was, uh, you know, one thing leads to another. You. You do a role where you, it's kind of, there's two kinds of acting, there's, there's representational acting where you're using yourself to depict the behavior of a, of a character you're supposed to be playing, and then there's that kind of acting where you're transforming yourself into an abstract being that may or may not have ever existed, but that is a purely superficial, a, a, a supercilious, uh, um um, uh,
1: it's not based in reality, you yeah. have to ground something that's sort of... Yeah,
2: yeah. It's a, what's, the, what's, what's the genre? Super, supernatural? Supernatural mm-hmm. character, that's it, thank you very much. Cool. The uh, medication is gonna kick in any time <laughs> <Yeah>. now. Yeah, I saw his nurse backstage. But, um, so I did one role where I'm like, you know, covered in makeup and a mask, and then all of a sudden I'm on the short list for other roles where I'm covered so well, that leads to *Name uh, of the Rose*, and then that leads to *Beauty and the Beast*, and then that leads to uh, what else was there? *The Island of Dr. Moreau*. The Island of Dr. Moreau, and then ultimately *Hellboy*. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be able to put up with that, because some actors can't deal with it. Well, there's a, you know, the, 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 there's the other, the other, the other part of it, which is that in order to Get made up for those roles. You have to be willing to sit there for four hours usually and do nothing while somebody else is applying the stuff onto you. What people don't know about me is that what I love to do more than anything else is sit in one place and do nothing. <laughs> so I'm, I'm your I'm your motherfucker when it's <laughs> You want me to sit around and do nothing? Call me, I'll give y'all yeah, my number if that's the... If you could pay me for that shit.
1: You need so, an actor who's creative waiting for you know, buses.
2: There's, there's a lot of actors that get very like antsy in the chair, and you know, like, restless, and want to go out, you know, get on the phone. Nah, oh, man.
1: <laughs> I get some peace, I get some me time. So Beauty and the Beast was enormous. It was a huge show. It was very popular, and you got to be on I think it was a top 10 show, without probably being, it seemed to for three seasons though, so it was, everyone talked about If
2: you 10. count from the bottom.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean top,
2: top 10. If you I count from, the from the, like, the, the, the lowest rated show, it was in the top 10. <laughs> Compared to shows now, I'm supposed <laughs> to. Yeah.
1: But I mean, it was it three seasons, it was, it went along. Two and a half seasons. Yeah, I mean, a, a huge show on a major network. And because you're under makeup the whole time, it's it's not people probably weren't recognizing you like they would for Linda Hamilton, or I mean, people probably know from Terminator 2, but um, that has to be kind of freeing. You get to be a, a, a major star, a major sitcom, or not sitcom, but a major network show without having to deal with a lot of the, the life-invasive stuff that comes with it.
2: I'll give you a little example. Um, generally, I had to get, in order to be ready to work at 8 o'clock in the morning, I usually had to get there at 4 a.m., me and my makeup artist, to get ready. So by the time I got on the set, I was fully Vincent, fully, you know, the beast. And uh, one day in the second season, I got a late call. I got a call where I didn't have to be ready until noon, so they called me in at around 8 o'clock in the morning. They had already started filming. So I stopped off at the... At the food, you know, station, the craft service table, you know, and I'm, I'm buttering a bagel. And there's two, cre- two crew members, who I have now been working with for a year and a half, talking shit about me. <laughs> <laughs> Had no idea. It was me. <laughs> they, they'd never seen me. They'd only seen, you know, the, just, you know, with the hair on his nose, that guy. He's such an asshole. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I think we got. I, an I, I, didn't, I I didn't. I didn't interrupt him or nothing. I just. I, I just wanted to hear the rest of this shit. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't join in, be like you know that guy.
1: <laughs>
2: and I, I did. I joined in. I said, Jesus, what an asshole! <laughs> they thought they recognized the voice, and they went.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you're in a movie that I loved growing up. All the time, and I don't know if you get this one often, but Ice Pirates. i a huge fan of it. I love that movie. Robert, your movie?
2: Yeah, there's a really small group, like a cult of people who <laughs> want to talk about Ice it's Pirates. It's me and four of <laughs> I'm not in that cult. No. Especially.
1: I mean, it seemed, it seemed like a movie that was fun to make when you watch it, but it may very well not have uh, been.
2: You know, you have your high points as an actor, and you have your low points. I'm not going to identify which one that...
1: Yes, we'll move on. Uh, I'm also a great fan of Drive, which is uh, slightly different from Ice Even I like that one. Yeah. (laughs) But you got the the sort of comedic scenes in the movie were were a lot of your stuff. you got to act opposite one of my favorite comics in the world, Mr. Albert Brooks, who was terrifying in that movie. It, was the tone hard to strike in that? Did you have?
2: Um, no, it was uh, a, a it was wonderful uh, collaboration because when we when we all first got assembled, the script was only about thirty percent written. You know, it, it had gone through a lot of iterations. By the time it arrived into the hands of, of Nick Reffin and, and, and Ryan Gosling, their vision for it was very very unique, so we all participated in kind of helping to create what the movie ultimately ended up being. And uh, everybody was working to their strengths, you know, and everybody was being asked to, to give their version of uh, who, who are you in this world, who do you want to be in this world, and so it was, um, it was one of those rare things where we all had a, kind of an input. So by the time we were shooting the film, there was a great deal of ownership of, uh, of, of what each of us were playing
1: Yeah, I mean, it shows on, on screen. It's, everyone seems so uh, on board with that movie. And then was Cronus, the, Cronus was the first time we
2: worked with Guillermo, right? Cronus was the first time Guillermo worked with Guillermo. Yes, that's true. I mean, Guillermo had been working with but nobody knew about it because you know, he was doing a lot of, uh, you know, genre uh, TV in Mexico, um, but very local. And Kronos was the first feature film he ever made, and luckily that film uh, traveled to beyond the shores of Mexico to the rest of the world, and that's where. The legend of Guillermo del Toro began to be formed.
1: It's such an unusual movie, especially at the time that it came out, when stuff we were getting in the horror genre was you know, Dr. Giggles. You know, we weren't getting uh, a thoughtful uh, movie that's an allegory for aging and you know has all the things that we love about classic horror. How, when that script came across you, were you like, this is unusual? Did you did you immediately know that it was something different?
2: I not only immediately knew that it was something different but I I, I had the sense that this was a movie that would never ever get green lit in the United States because it was, it didn't resemble anything you'd ever seen before and you know the U.S. is famous for, especially the last 30 years, um, just repeating itself and you know, not being very adventurous, doing things that they know it's going to work, things you've seen a hundred times before. This movie on paper paper was, I mean it was was ultimately a vampire movie, but it was ultimately so much more and the way it arrives at being a vampire movie covered vast amounts of of, uh, allegorical, metaphorical, kind of um, uh, human condition uh, characteristics, which became which was, which was actually Guillermo's serving notice that he was going to use genre, but not just for genre's sake, but as a, a springboard towards ju- juxtaposing it against um, some of the more uh, uh, radical impulses in the human condition. You know, Han's Labyrinth is is this magical world juxtaposed against this, this horrific fascism of, of, of Spain in the, in the 30s. You know, and, and that's what Guillermo does and that's why he, he, he he's one of our more important artists because it, his movies aren't just one thing, they're always, you know, 15 different things operating at the same time. Incredibly elegantly done, beautifully done um cinema at its most sophisticated
1: I mean it harkens back to, like, <laughs> to, to it's evident that he grew up on things like the Twilight zone and things like Night Gallery where I always say those shows made us better people and kind of to, to where we started here those allegories of shows when we we're growing up watching kids and even the movies we we learned how to be a better human whether we knew it or not and you could watch *The Devil's Backbone* for this—it's a beautiful haunting movie—and not see the allegory of war and, and life and death and that sort of thing. But that's still going to seep in a little bit, whether you want it to or not. And it's—it's it's great that that's not lost. <laughs> We're still getting those kind of movies, but to your point, they're few and far between still. And we, you know, get a remake of something from last year.
2: And you know, the system. I had—I had a had talk with Guillermo about a month ago. Um, we were at a film festival together. He was being given a lifetime achievement award. Of course, I was giving it to him. I'm never. I'm, you know, they, they told me he was giving me one. That's how they fucking got me. Fucking... <laughs> the classic rules. I should have known better, right? But anyway, I'm giving him this this piece of shit over lifetime of have. I mean, literally, like, come on, what has he done lately? You know, he hasn't won an Academy Award in about a month and a half. He's so. lazy. Lazy. Anyway, but I, 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 we had this conversation, you know, he assumes, because he's Guillermo del Toro, that, you know, uh, it's easy to, I mean, I'm here to tell you, the system is not set up for the emergence of a Guillermo del Toro. In order for that to take place, you have to be ruthless, you have to be ready to say no, go fuck yourself to the system, you have to you have to really, really, really be uncompromising in a world where compromise is, is basically, you know, a modus operandi of getting employed. And uh, you have to have a kind of an artistry that straddles the fence between artistry and putting asses in the seats in theaters, which is very, very difficult to do. It used to be um, that was the way it was, all the way up until the, the '60s and '70s, and, and then it just started to turn around in the '80s. You know, I just blame uh, Jaws. I just, I, I just blame um, this is the. George Lucas was yep. <laughs> all There's blockbusters where it has to be an
1: event. You can't tell small
2: you know you know, the, you know and, and, and and you know it was it was, it was cool, you know, when, when Star Wars was like, you know, part of the Zeitgeist. It's not cool when it's the only zeitgeist. It's not cool when it, when it has completely overwhelmed the ability to see a beautiful little movie about people, which used to be all we went to see. Now we don't see them at all. And you know, when they're made, which they're still being made, you know. Like I made seven myself in the last few years and no one has seen them because,
1: you know. Do you feel like TV's picked up some of the slack though? Like since Key*? and you know, you have these shows that in the past would have been the kind of characters and stories you would have told in some smaller movies.
2: I feel uh, incredibly much like TV has picked up the slack and I thank God for the state of TV right now because there is some great writing and some great storytelling taking place on television. Um, And that's due to the fact that um, there's so much competition that the only way to um, get the attention of the audience is to be even more original and edgy than the last guy. So people are like, you know, the great writers are like going into their deepest recesses of imagination coming up with these phenomenal scenarios of worlds to depict. And TV is, is amazing. And it's also, people are getting paid. I mean, you can do the same thing in cinema right now, but but you can't get paid. And uh, everybody's got to keep the lights on.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a tough mix between art and commerce. to it's kind of amazing anything good ever gets made when the balance is on. Uh, so let's turn to the audience. Let's take some questions. Let's have the audience
2: turn on us. Let's turn on <laughs> us. Just tear us apart. Are
1: we up there, yes. Uh, I, have a, I have a question. What was your favorite memory of
2: desperation?
1: Tell you about the, the not just the general desperation. <laughs> <laughs> you
2: mean the Stephen King book? Stephen King, yeah. <laughs> Not the desperation I feel in the morning when I wake up. Yeah.
1: It's a personal desperation.
2: I actually, uh, I mean, that, that whole thing was such a, a kind of a gift, you know, to play this completely insane, almost villain, you know, like, it, it, he, he's like uh, the Friar's Club for, of, of insanity, um, and Probably the, the, the scenes that, that were the most fun to uh, explore were the scenes with Tom Skerritt where i pick him up by the side of the road and, and uh, um, incarcerate him and plant marijuana on. You know, I'd, I'd pull out every trick of the book on that guy. That was, that was a couple of fun days of shooting. He's, he's, a, he's a terrific, really a terrific guy to work with. Where are we
1: next? Middle, yes. Uh, Hi, I just want to say first, I'm so happy to be here. I I loved you in Hellboy, I loved you in uh, Halo, but by far my favorite character that you play was Hannibal Chow in Pacific Rim. And that, well, one quirk about your character that I absolutely loved is, you know, you say how you came up with that name, and I wanted to ask, is is Hannibal the real life one? uh, Is he your favorite historical figure, and if not, who is? Thank you.
2: Appreciate it. Well, Hannibal is not my favorite historical figure, except in the fiction of uh, Pacific Rim. Um, my favorite historical figure. Oh my God. Is
1: there one you'd like to play? Um.
2: No. <laughs> I'm about to uh, play Hemingway, which uh, which I. I, I and as, I, as I research him, I find him, you know, he's like this onion, you keep peeling off layers and you still haven't gotten anywhere close to the center. He's a very complex guy. I think my favorite historical figure might be Bob Dylan. Um, and I mean, I to explain that, <laughs> but um, he is, you talk about somebody who came around at the right time and what he had to offer was um, something that pulled along an entire generation of dreamers. Um, and then we all fucked it all up. <laughs> Our dreaming turned into like, you know, Portfolios on Wall Street, you know, like, you know, the other bullshit. When you, how, get, when you get to be an adult. How
1: can we turn wonderful things into money? Where are we? Next question. We're up in the back there, yes? Uh, I just wanted to ask if you had any particularly funny or embarrassing moments with the set of Hollywood. Hellboy, funny
2: or embarrassing moments? Well, there's um, always embarrassing moments in all of my films, my friend. <laughs> I'm sure there were many on Hellboy, but I, my medication doesn't allow me to recall them, right? It's on Embarrassing. It removes those metrics. Oh, yeah. That's good, man. Yeah, this guy's guy, guy good. <laughs> I may be doing commercials for Embarrassing. <laughs> and, and the list of, uh, you know... You know, um, do not take if, if, if you notice your rash. You know, the, the list of qualifiers at the end of all these, you know, these... These are drug commercials. Gambling is
1: mm-hmm. yes. one. Can you imagine
2: the you list of qualifiers at the end of embarrassment. <laughs> Ask your doctor,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll forget about asking your doctor because that's an embarrassing moment, embarrassing for the race. <laughs>
0: you can shit your pants. No matter. Yes. Yes. So you play a lot of. Big guys and violent people. Well what the
2: fuck am I gonna play? <laughs> I'm such a victim. Me <laughs> too. <V2. laughs> God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Wonder why they love me for who I am. <laughs> Rather than for this. It's not a piece of
1: meat, everybody. I have feelings, you know.
2: I do love you, uh, you've worked with,
1: <laughs> you work with uh, Guillermo del Toro, but you've also worked with uh, other really innovative uh, directors, John Pierre Chagot, with City of Lost Children, uh, and uh, like that crazy, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, the, uh, Aliens movie, what
2: was the, that experience like, working with, the, with that director? That was uh, intense, man. You know, uh, working on City of Lost Children was, uh, I was the only American, I was actually the only non-Frenchman who happened to be an American. I was the the only one in the entire movie that needed an interpreter, because the only people who didn't speak English were the directors, and the only person who didn't speak French was me. Um, But it was kind of like going to church, it was like, A very reverential set, like these guys were making some something sacred, and uh, so there was a a seriousness that kind of defined the whole six month experience. You know, what they were reaching for was, um, you know, I hate I hate to say this because it's probably gonna sound, you know, like I'm a fool of shit, you know, like. But, you know, like really, really classical cinema. They were reaching for something that was going to be a movie for the ages. I think they fell short, but I think they ended up making a very, very interesting film. And the circumstances around my being in it were as trippy as any that have ever occurred in my career. I mean, I really felt like, holy shit, like, how lucky can you be to be the one that's picked to be this fish out of water. You know, in this this kind of innocent uh, foreigner in a in a world that uh, uh, that's locally decaying from within. Um, yeah, thank you very much. I, 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 uh, I'm really really proud of the moments that went into making that film. It's like a fairy tale. <laughs>
1: Did you find yourself watching films and and thinking I'd really
2: like to work with this director or...? Yeah, I really would love to work with Paolo Sorrentino. Um, You may know him from The Young Pope that he did with uh, Jude Law. (laughs) He made a movie about two or three years ago called Youth, which I thought was exquisite. Before that, uh, uh, what is it? Something beauty? the, The Great Beauty. Phenomenal filmmaker Isabelle um, Zabo. I'd love to work with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. I'd love to work with uh, you know. I I would give anything to be on set with, with the Coen Brothers. So
1: um, you have you have uh, you have an affinity for these directors that have a very stylized, very auteur
2: kind of. When they make a
1: movie, we know it's one of their movies. Yeah.
2: yeah well, you know that there's. The thing about that we love about cinema is that it does things that no other art form can do because it's 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 not any one thing. It's a conglomeration of all of the fine arts put together in one place. So you have narrative, which is great literature, and then you have production design, which is you know like painting, like which colors are going to go into the pastiche that makes up this moving painting. And then you have lighting, which is, which is this whole, I mean then, and then you have the clothes, and then you have, so you have, you have like 45 different artists who do different things who are the best in the world at what they do. And you, when you're working with guys like the ones I just mentioned, these guys are creating cinema at its most, Greatest potential because it's, it's it's purely unique, it's purely original. It's never you, they never repeat themselves. They never do anything that, they, that they've seen somewhere else. Um, and they're they're brilliant. They're dealing with worlds that are exquisite and important and, and 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 uncomfortable and you know all the while recognizable by all of us because. You know, the human condition is, is our commonality, not our differences, so... Um, that's why I love movies, man. Yeah. What's your favorite movie? Godfather Paul One. Yeah. Godfather Paul One is my favorite movie. <laughs>
0: yes.
2: That's Guillermo del Toro at his quintessential best, you know, I don't know anybody would have thought of that shit.
1: I think it was Jack Warden once said, like, the three things actors want to play most is drunk, their own twin, or their own death. <laughs> I don't know how true that is, but
2: one of those well, I don't, I'm Well, I'm not, I'm not I'm that big of a to play my own death, I'll but... The uh, character's death. Oh, the Not faking
1: your death and moving to another country, <laughs> which we may have to do with. Next question. Yes.
2: When you were, when you were playing Sabola in the Book of Life, what did you think about your character's personality? Well, you know, he's a little devil. I mean, literally, but I mean, he you know, he's uh he's from this other dimension, um, the land of the dead. Um and uh he's uh, he's he's uh He's very, very theatrical. He'll do anything to uh, mess with people.
0: You know, he's a provocateur, and uh, there's something
2: very, very compelling about watching a provocateur who has who has real power because he's a god, and who has real intellect, and who is very creative in the way he messes. Now I would say fucks with people, but you sound like you're a very small person. Yeah, we really <laughs> like, so I don't want no, to say, you know, like a word like that. If I, you know.
1: It would be horrible if she was to hear that word today. <laughs> yes.
2: So you talk a lot. I'm so sorry, man. <laughs> I just, I just can't help myself. I'm just so, so sorry. Yes?
0: Yeah, Um, so you're talking about the importance of getting people's asses in seats in the theaters, right? Um, How do you feel about the medium of Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, and the importance of those mediums? Doesn't matter what the seat is, or... yeah.
2: Look man, you know, they're here. For better or for worse, they're here. They've definitely transformed the way entertainment is delivered to people. And in so doing, they've transformed the way people want their entertainment delivered to them. Uh, people are no longer in a hurry to, to do that thing that we did for a hundred years, which is, you know, take the wife, get in the car, go to a movie theater, buy some popcorn and Coke and sit in a dark place with 2,000 strangers and have this beautiful communal moment of, of watching magic on the screen, you know? Uh, that, was, um, that was, that was, that was I mean, you know, we, we did it great in America, but that's a worldwide thing, man, going to the movies. Going to the movies, and having a night where you, you're away from the kids, and you're away from your problems, and you're away from, you know, now, it gets delivered to you. You know, and you, you, you're just like at the point now where you can't tell the difference between watching it on here and watching it in 70 millimeter on a fucking screen. Nobody gives a shit anymore. That's what's happened when you desensitize an art form, when you normalize it, when you take the magic away from it by delivering it to everybody without ever having to get out of their fucking underwear and get off their couch. And... Um, There is a difference between watching Lawrence of Arabia on this, and at the Ziegfeld in New York, you know, or the Cinerama Dome, or whatever the great theater is here in Denver. And I'm sure there's a great old theater here in Denver, you know, where you go and want to watch Gone with the Wind or The Godfather Part One, and just like, ha ah, ah, ha ah. ha ha. But, you know, Netflix is here, man. Amazon is here, Hulu is here, they're here. And, you know, you can't fight it, it's just the way it goes, you, you know, I don't, even, I don't even know, I don't even know what direction to turn it up. I started a little independent movie company about six years ago, it's called Wing and a Prayer Pictures, we've now made about eight or nine movies. And I can't sell them. Some of them are pretty good, some of them suck, but I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know. even Mickey Mantle only batted at 3.30. You know, so, uh, I'm good, you know, that they don't the, the, the masterpieces, but they should sell. Somebody should want to buy, even, even the shitty ones, you know. But they just, you know, we're, we're, we're past, it. we're beyond. We're, we've, we've opened a new Pandora's box, and I don't even know what to tell you, man. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know where it all goes. I know that there's a decay in, in the world right now. I know that this world that we're living in right now is um, not better than it was, you know, 50 years ago. Um, because of things like this. Because the magic has been removed from a lot of stuff. And we've become desensitized to a lot of things that used to be beautiful and moving and magical and, and uh, special. And now, you know, in you could put something special on Twitter and, and they will ruin it in 30 seconds.
1: If, that's a long time on Twitter. <laughs> Do you remember the first movie you saw in the theater?
2: My dad had me gone to the theater from the time I was three years old. Um, I remember Shame. I remember The Ten Commandments. I don't know what years those movies were, they were in the early fifties, no, in the 50s. Shane was like 53 and I saw that in the theater, that, you know, the week it opened. Um, I saw a lot of movies in the theater you know, with my dad, my dad was a cinephile, he didn't know why, he just loved going to movies, he was just a working class, stiff, blue collar guy, he, he's the one who turned me on to loving movies.
1: Though, to your point, like, those are the people who need movies the most, like, the people who need that escape in an environment that's not
2: their everyday problem. you see, the problem is, is it it is an escape, but it's also not an escape. What it is, is an affirmation. Yeah. That we all are in this shit together. I mean, that's (laughs) what all... That's what the arts do. They... They... They just are little tiny truths happening all the time. Like, oh yeah, I, I know that, I felt that, I, I know what that guy's going through. I, you know, you see it in paintings, you see it in music, you see it in that, and it's just be- basically there to remind us that we're all in this shit together, which is why culture is, is so precious and so important and, 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 and supersedes politics sometimes. Because politics is a trend, you know, you're up, you're down, you're on the left, you're on the right, you know. But the human condition, knowing that we're all in this together, that's, that's a constant.
1: Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is, Art is a lie that tells the truth. And it's so important to have. We like to
2: lead that in society. This guy's good to me. I try, I try. <laughs> yeah, art, art is a
1: lie that tells the truth. <laughs> I didn't make it up, but someone else did, but I just remembered it. Uh, so we we'll are probably done for two more over here. Messing. Hi. Um, so what would you suggest for aspiring directors who want to make it into the film industry um, with the state it's currently in, with every blockbuster coming out like every three months, um, like trying to put something beautiful out, like Young Del Toro does.
2: Well the good news about the time we're living in is 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 that you can take this thing and make your own movie. You know, you don't you don't need any money, man. You can you can Gather, gather a few of your really, really cool creative friends and say, hey, I got an idea, you know, and you know, just go do it. And people are really, that's how people are emerging right now, is basically they're going and doing shit and they're figuring out a way to have it get seen either on YouTube or, you know, some sort of an internet sharing thing. And boom, you know, if, if you resonate, if you click, if, if you get enough hits, people stand up and take notice and, and Suddenly, you're in the mainstream. So that's that's how you do it.
1: There's no more gatekeepers, which is good and bad. So if you, you just do good work, and if it's going to find an audience, it will. If you not, it's harder to bury movies now. It
0: used to be bloody so easy. Uh, yes. First of all, thanks for doing what you do. Uh, you're one of my favorite actors. Over the course of your career, you've inspired me to feel every emotion I have keep doing it for a long time. One of my favorites is the city of lost children. Uh, obviously going to be challenging because the entire movie is delivered in French and as you said you're the only American on set. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the challenges of trying to deliver those lines in French? Did you have to learn them phonetically like Bela Lugosi, or did you actually have to learn some French?
2: You know the interesting thing was when I always knew I had to perform it in French but the reason why they chose me is because they wanted somebody who didn't sound French. They wanted somebody who was living in this in this um, uh, region, but who was a stranger. He was a stranger in a strange land. He was an innocent abroad. And so the decision that we ultimately made that he was—he was like Baltic. He was like Russian or Serbian. Or he had something, you know, like that kind of a, a, an approach to language. So. I spoke French with a Russian accent in the movie and you don't know that unless you're French. (laughs) To you, it just sounds like, that's the worst French I've ever heard. (laughs) There was a reason for that. And the other thing is, is that when they actually gave me, you know, they, 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 they gave me my lines to learn because they knew what I had to learn them to deliver them. All my lines were on one page. So the next time you go back to see the movie, if you ever see the movie, realize how little I speak in the film. And when I do speak, it's very, very short sentences and stuff. There was one speech that I gave. It was a really long speech. And they ended up cutting it because it, it seemed like it wasn't my character, even though it was the most beautiful speech in the film. This happened to me a lot, where the most beautiful thing in the film ends up getting cut because it doesn't seem to fit with the rest of it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, uh, there wasn't that much to learn. It wasn't that hard. Because
1: they tailored the character for...
2: Well, he was, he was this guy who was basically, mostly, the beauty of him was that he, instead of talking, he was, he would listen, you know, and he was, like, around all these kids and he was feeling all of their pain and all of their frustration and, you know, he became everybody's big brother. Not because he was talking, but because he was feeling and listening. That was the thing about the character that was kind of attractive.
1: So we have a minute left, and I have a quick question.
2: Yes, Barry, up there? Yeah. Um, What's your
1: opinion on voice acting? Voice acting. Easy question to answer in a minute.
2: Well, you know I do a lot of it, so you know I love it. I'm a big fan of it. Uh, The reason why I love it is because I love acting in general, but voice acting requires not a lot of sitting around and analyzing and rehearsing. You basically walk in and an hour later you've walked out and you've given a performance. So it's mostly being done on a very instinctive level. You know, like, you look at it and you say, I feel like this is the way it's going to be. Occasionally the director will tweak what you're doing. But it's, it's basically stand and deliver. And I really like working on a primal level like that. And you know, just doing different voices. and Some of those guys who work in, in, in animation in Los Angeles are the most talented. Mofos I've ever been around, so it's really, really cool to be in that setting. And um, yeah, it's, it's very cool. Are
1: you ever surprised by the end result? Because it takes years sometimes to see what the animation looks like after you voiced it, you ever see a movie and you're like, "Oh, that's not what I was thinking."
2: Well, the good thing about me, because I'm 68 years old and I've I've, I've had so many failures in my life, is that I expect everything to suck. <laughs> never so you know, the yeah, only time know. I'm surprised is it returns that good, <laughs> <laughs> and then it's, it's a good surprise. It's like, "Oh, wow." <laughs> I didn't see that coming, you know? <laughs> The beauty of pessimism.
1: Uh, well, thank you guys for being
0: here. Thank Ron Perkins. If you like this, check out some of our other shows like Mr. Right, Exotic Liability, and No Applause, Just The Clap. You can find us at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for BACN on iTunes and Stitcher.
2: Yeah.